You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBattleLeroy.com. Well, before we open to our text this morning, just two things before we get there. One is by way of confession, and I just need to do this. You, you may say, Mike, that seems pretty small and insignificant. Perhaps it is, but to me it's not. So last week I, I gave an announcement for upcoming baptism, and, and I want those that are interested in being baptized, um, I want you to talk to me, but I made it. I said this, I said uh, some are interested in baptism. Well, the truth is, one is, not some. It makes it sound like there's more. And, you know, I, I brushed that off, but midweek just convicted like, I, I lied. I didn't tell the truth. And so truth is important to me. So I apologize to you. And uh, I want to speak truth. And uh, I'm a man who messes up repeatedly. Uh, but by the grace of God, but wanted to share that with you. So, desire to share the truth, no matter how. Um, one other is, uh, Brandon talked about me being out of the office next week. God in His providence uh, is wonderful. And so, Brandon will be preaching next week. Uh, I was joking with Brandon this week, it almost, it's like God's sovereignty part three. So, come back. Don't miss the last sermon in this series. And we didn't plan this out, did we? Um, pretty cool. We know who did. So anyway, come back. I think you will appreciate what you're going to hear from God's Word. So come back next Sunday for that. So let's get to our Scripture for what we're in this week. And again, we're taking a couple weeks off of Mark and then a couple, uh, well, a lot more off of Mark. And uh, But this week, I want to just, we're going to go lots of places again, so... We're going to warm up the fingers for the Scripture. We're going here and there and places in between. But first, you can go to 1 Corinthians. Maybe you're there already. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31 is where we'll start. Guys, let's show the picture from last week up here. Uh, Madeline, I put her name in the thing. Her name came out. Uh, Last week, we were talking about God's sovereignty over the hurricanes and the storms and the wind. And even over Satan. Satan's not ultimate, God is. And so uh, she drew this of, of Jesus on the left side. The king. He's got the crown. And there's Satan. Uh, I don't know what he's saying there, but he's got some, some phrase there. So thank you, Madeline, for drawing that. Thank you, kids, for bringing those pictures up to me. And if I'm talking to somebody else, just, just hand them to my hand and I'll, I'll get them uh, from you. Well, let's look into God's Word then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-31, at least as a starting point. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me pray for us again. Father, we're covering quite the territory today. And so I ask just again, as a corporate body this morning, that You, by Your Spirit, reveal Your Word to us. Guide us not to go further than Your Word allows, but guide us to have understanding of what Your Word says. Lord, may what comes out of my mouth be glorifying to You, be edifying for this body that we would go out of here with a greater love and passion and and really heart's affection of this God who calls us to Himself. So Lord, guide our time together. We're asking, Lord, for Your work here. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today I want to speak again on God's sovereignty. I have a definition here and I didn't write down where it's from, but as we think of the word sovereignty of God, thinking of His absolute rule and order over all things created, both in the world and in the human. Last week, as we saw a picture from Madeline, I hope it was helpful in light of all the devastations to think biblically on God's absolute rule over things like the weather and hurricanes. But this study on God's sovereignty also can lead to other questions of just how it is that God, how does He rule all things, and yet it seems man makes choices. We choose Walmart over Target. Starbucks or caribou, you like the color blue or maybe you like red. Seems man makes choices and so on. We see that our question here today really is how does God's sovereignty, his rule, how does it intersect or relate to that of human responsibility or might say the will? The will of man. I recognize that wading into these waters is not without the potential for controversy and high emotion as we think about the will of man. Uh, The debate on God's right as supreme ruler to do all He pleases and, and that relationship to man's will, His choices, their apparent freedom. It goes back long before I ever became a pastor, long before you were born. It goes back a long, long ways. And the advice here may be, this why go stick your hand into a beehive, right? This is kind of this can be why this thought came to my mind this week. Why stick your hand into a beehive? And it does seem to be a bit crazy to go sticking your hand into something controversial. But kids, if I'm right, what's in a beehive? B- bees. What do they make in there, Lincoln? Honey. You go stick your hand in a beehive. There, there's honey in there. Now, where am I going with that? It's sweet, honey. Well, as your pastor, I am figuratively sticking my hand into a potential beehive dealing with this subject. But here's what I'm after. Hopefully for you to taste as well. Here's what I'm after. Not being right. Here's what we're after. The sweet honey of God's goodness and mercy in Christ to sinners. His powerful work alone. His bringing to life what was dead. His grace alone that frees the sinner slash slave and a grace that ultimately saves so that 
all of his own may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We will worship him forever and ever. So I hope it leads our eyes upward to God and his goodness and his glory. There is some context, though, to this question and what we're dealing with today, and I need to share that with you. A couple of weeks ago, we welcomed Ken Teeter to come and share with us, his wife Kathy. Maybe some of you were here. If you're a visitor today, you weren't here, that's okay. He shared with us about their ministry in Minneapolis. Overall, I appreciated a lot, very much of what Ken had to say. How he used, remember that board up here, the paintings, drawing out the stories up here of the scripture, pointing us to Jesus. But Ken did, he brought up something, and I, along with the elders, we think it's worth at least addressing. And this is an area of disagreement against, or among, I shouldn't say against, among brothers. I count Ken as a brother in the Lord, a fellow laborer in the gospel. So don't hear me just up here to slander someone. But there is one point where we would, we would disagree. And I, as your pastor, it's, I know we're not in the living room to sit down and kind of say, well, here's, but we want to just think about this. So let me give you the context. Uh, in speaking about God, this is Ken when he spoke about God and his love for us and how he wants to lavish on us all the greatness of who he is and what he has in store for us forever and ever. He, he made the following statement. I'll just I'll just read it to you. It's what I said. Ken said, and yet God or he wants genuine love, genuine worship. And the only way you can have genuine worship is to give people free will, free choice. And he doesn't force anyone to come to him. And so the question here, is God wanting us to choose him, but but ultimately, as I understand it, leaving the choice to us? I'll let you know, I did contact Ken this week with some of these questions so he could clarify. He did respond. Uh, Ken would define free choice, and that's really the language of of this debate, is free free choice, free will, that sort of thing. Uh, He would define it, as this, quote, God is at work to show me my sin and help me to understand Christ's death on the cross. I can choose to continue to rebel against God and remain in my sin. Unquote. So for Ken, free will or a choice, it's not absent of God's work, but it's a work that, and if I understand correctly, it opens up the possibility for us to choose God or reject Him. So God's not forcing himself on a man, but but man is not uh, free to go one way or not, uh, salvation or not. Man's, you choose which way. Perhaps in the future, he and I will discuss this further as brothers, not with fists, maybe with a cup of coffee, but a Bible open. And for now, that's all I want to say about that context. I'm not here to really just die, but I'm saying that's the context that brings up this discussion. I want to lead us and guide us. He, he brought it up as a way to answer the, how do we respond? What's the will? But it's not the only way to look at this question. And, and really the debate, it's really summed up between two different ideas. And these are bigger words. But one is, is do we see salvation as a monergistic act or a synergistic? And I'll explain that. The salvation moner, you hear monogistic or monergistic. Mono meaning one. Is it, a, is it an act of God alone or is it a synergistic act where God does his part and we do our part and therefore salvation? 
That can can lead that can maybe be helpful to think through these. Is it is God does God alone save? I know there's faith, there's repentance. See, we'll try to talk about that. That's why if you're timing the sermon, it may go longer than others. That's because I'm not here this week, so we've got an extra thirty minutes from next week. I'm borrowing. I'm just kidding, but it could be longer. Just bear with me, okay? It, just be thankful. It could be longer, and it's not. So, but. Um, so that's that way, God alone or synergistic man and God. Here's what I want to do, just to give you a rough outline of where I'm coming, where we're going to look at this. I, I want to try to approach this idea in, in two, two ways, and I'll try to help lead us through this. Here's the first, first way. If you were outlining point, point one, and then we're going to fill it in some scripture, and then point two, and, and we'll fill it in. Here's, here's one. Man's actions are real. And his choices are real. But God's actions or acting is behind each and every action or choice of man. Here's that in short. God is the decisive cause behind man's choices. We're going to kind of work that out. I'm, I'm using that language, that, that decisive cause. That's a, that's a John Piper type word. I heard it. I've kind of grabbed onto it, said I I appreciate that. I think it's helpful. So, in other words, we, we can cause things, but behind our causing something, there's a decisive causer. So, in short, God is a decisive cause behind man's choices. We're going to look at some Scripture. And then, and then two, so that's kind of big. And then number two, without the work of God in sinful man, without that work, our will is not free, but in bondage to sin. I'm going to make... We're going to look at that at scripture without the work of God and sinful man, our will is not free, but is in bondage to sin. So the first one, again, God's will is the decisive cause behind our will. In other words, as we said, man's actions, his choices, his decisions, they're, they're real. They're real choice. They make real decisions. And yet behind all of these, God's acts are the decisive cause. Turn with me to Genesis 50, verse 20. Our first stop on our journey today, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It is a helpful stop. It doesn't say everything, but it says something very helpful, how Joseph brings us about. And as you're getting to Genesis 50, verse 20 or thereabouts, Joseph, we're back in the Old Testament, one of the 12 brothers of Jacob, uh, the son of Rachel. He's been sold by his brother to Midianite traders and they take him to Egypt who sell him there to Potiphar and so forth. Well, eventually, he's thrown in prison. I'm not recapping the whole story, but, but by God's hand, Pharaoh appoints him to be really second only to Pharaoh. And here's Joseph sold in slavery by his brothers, sold to these traders. Pharaoh appoints him second only to him. Through this, all through these events, all these events, God ends up saving uh, the entire family of Joseph, Israel, from a famine. But now, now his his father Jacob is gone. But his brothers they worry. After some time, so this has all happened. He's revealed himself to his brothers, and all this has gone on. And they worry that now that their father Jacob is dead, Joseph's going to hate them. He he's going to pay them back for evil. And I believe they make up a story of their father asking Joseph to forgive him. So you know, Joseph, hey, by the way, dad. Dad told us you, should, you ought to forgive us for all that stuff we did to you. And here is a very helpful to us in this discussion, 
helpful response of Joseph. And it starts, I'll just read in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, to his brothers, and it says 50, verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We can ask, did the brothers here, did they make a choice to sin and sell their, their, sell their brother? Absolutely they did. They meant evil. But there was something behind their decision that they didn't even know about. God meant it for good. We can look at other places. Time's sake, we're going to head now back through the Old Testament all the way back over. Take a good chunk of your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 4. And in the context where we're going to go is probably perhaps, it's not perhaps, the most evil event and happenings of man in the world. And let's see what we see in here. Acts chapter 4. I'll be in verses 24 through 31. Acts 4, 24 through 31. Peter and John, they've, they've proclaimed it before this time. They've proclaimed to the rulers. There, there's no other name given among men to be saved but Jesus. And, and these rulers charge them to not speak in that name. But Peter and John basically reply, we're going to only teach what we've heard. And then they're released and they go back and they're, they're basically with their friends and this prayer is made. And that's kind of where this picks up here in verse 24. And I want you to listen to this prayer. It's very insightful. Not the only place in Acts, but one of this, starting verse 24. When they heard it, um, this is the friends they went, Peter and uh, John went back to. When they heard it, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, a great way to begin, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of, your, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's Christ. Verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Ultimately, the... So Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, the Israelites yelling, crucify him. Do they mean that? They mean it. Are they doing these things? They're making these choices. Yes, they're real. But who is ultimately behind these things? Verse 28 seems to make clear they're just they're doing whatever your hand and your plan had been predestined to take 
place. Who's ultimately behind? God. In fact, so here we see man acting. He's moving. He's doing things, evil things. And yet behind all these, in fact, behind the most evil act of history in which Jesus, the Son of God, is nailed to the cross, God is behind it. We may not understand this. How can this be? That's okay if we don't. We might ask, though, is God just over those whose actions He has determined? Is God a just God? Does He do things with justice and rightness? Here's an article by Gordon Clark, and he quotes from from John Calvin. Here's Here's what he says. For the will of God is the highest rule of justice so that what he wills must be considered just for this very reason. So he's answering, why, is, why can we say God is just? For this very reason, because he wills it. When it is inquired, therefore, why the Lord did so, the answer must be because he would. But if you go further and ask why he's so determined, you are in search of something greater and higher than the will of God, which can never be found. God is sovereign. Whatever he does is just for this very reason, because he does it. So God is just not because we've determined him to be just or put the measuring bar and say, yeah, that looks like justice. I'll go with that. He's just because all of what he does is just. If we need a kind of a place to go for that, we won't look there, but you can write it down. Deuteronomy 32.4 speaks of God's works. They're perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. So, man's actions are real. His choices are real. But God's actions or acting is behind each and every action or choice of man. In short, again, God's the decisive cause behind man's choices. Okay, that's kind of the first, but then we're going to look deeper at our will. Is it totally free? Is it, I guess, as, as I think of free, is it independent of God, this or that, kind of neutral? Is it even able to choose the things which please God? And so we're going to look at this, this idea of our will. In Scripture, being in bondage to sin. And really, we're, we're saying, are we able or not able? Is, is, it, is it inability on our part to, in our sin, or are we able somehow? I'm going to try to look at this a, a bit for a bit chronologically. Um, you can turn there if you'd like, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Kind of taking us back, just skimming by, really. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 15. Through 17, we're looking at, uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at the will of man in the garden before the fall, before we fell in sin. What was the will of man like there? And then because of sin, what's the Bible say our will is now? Those in sin without a work of God in their hearts. So we're kind of looking at these two parts here. Here's what Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Here's some direction. Man, do these things, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
God gave Adam a, a choice here, a test in commanding Adam to not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think we can ask, from Adam's perspective, did he have a choice here? Is that what Scripture would say? Yes, he could choose. To him, it was a real choice. Eat, uh, not eat, or eat and take the forbidden fruit. Adam was not born in sin like we are. He had the ability to do right or wrong. And we could get into, you know, I'm not here, Adam's freedom. What's that look like? But suffice it to say, God reigned over this event as well, didn't He? Uh, Isaiah 46, 9b through 10, just one place. Uh, I'm not going there. You could write it down. But God says this, I am God. There is none like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's the one that declares the end from the beginning. So Adam had a real choice. But remembering behind that, right? His, but his desire, he could obey God, or his desire, he could disobey. And we know what happened. He chose, his, he chose to disobey. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam, able both to sin and not sin. But when sin entered, it changed. And that's where we get the phrase bondage of the will. Uh, Augustine said it this way, I think if I'm getting it right, we are not able to not sin. That's a double negative, right? But we're not able to not sin. In other words, we sin because that's just who we are. We're sinners. A dog is not a dog because he barks. A dog is, we know, that's a dog. But when the dog barks, he lives out of his dogness and barks. He's, he's, he's living out of that because that's who he is. We're unable to not sin. So, then, let's think about, so that's kind of pre-fall with Adam, and then bondage of the will comes in, Sin and where do we see this? Just let's look at some other places. Our Bibles are getting warmed up. Head to Romans three, ten through twelve. Very familiar passage to some. If not, that's all right. Romans chapter three. I'm going to be reading. I'll read nine through twelve here. Um, could be more, but I just three see three really inabilities here of man. Inability, and the first ones uh, under this the will in fallen man, there's the inability of the heart. In other words, you don't desire God. Without God's work in your life, you do not desire God. It could be moral. There's certain things, but we don't desire Him. Look at Romans 3. 10, uh, I'll read 9-12. through 12. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And it goes on from there. All are under sin and its effects. We make choices, but our heart desires are not for the glory of God. Here's what one author, James White, says. 
And he's speaking of, of this whole section here, 10 through 18. He says these testimonies are fatal to any kind of optimistic humanism. That is, is there a spark of good in you? Or you got some good in it, right? They're, they're just, they're fatal to that. He says this, outside of God's grace, that's where we're getting to, man is a corrupted creation, violent, hateful, without understanding, without fear of God. There's an inability in the heart to desire God. Continuing on, look, go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. There's also an inability of us to live. We are dead in our sin. Colossians 2, verse 13. I'll read 11 through 13 here. Um, there's some language circumcision in here. Think about this. Look at the words here. Um, verse 11, Colossians 2. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Uh, it goes on from there. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's certainly circumcision language here, right? But whose hands, if you're looking at this, whose hands are doing the circumcising? It's, it's one that, that Paul says in verse 11, it's made without hands. And then he says, you were dead. You were uncircumcised in your flesh. You were dead. God's made alive. It's without hands. Makes alive. Jesus says as much in John 6.63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. There's a circumcision done, not with hands of man, but done by God to make Alive. God brings to life what was dead. And that's what He does in sinners. So on our own, we're unable to live. We're dead. We're unable to follow God, to desire Him. And we're also unable or we have an inability to be free. You and I, without Christ, are a slave. Go to a rather longer passage in John 8.31. I know we're just cruising through. You can look these up. John 8, 31 through 47, a rather longer passage here. John 8, 31 through 47. Hopefully by the end you'll see why we're reading a longer section. Um, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him. Verse 31, John 8. He said, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Now, James White commenting here on this, he says these believers here, they're, they're surface level seekers. Believers that Jesus is talking to, many believed in Him, we see before, but they're surface level. So Jesus says to them, you know, they believe, if you abide, you're truly My disciples. Let me pick up in verse 32 then. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Oh boy, here we go. So now there's some difference here. And they answer him in verse 39. Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? How does he answer? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And here's now your will. What's your will? Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Then he says at the end, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Those not of God do not hear the words of God. They're slaves. Their desire is to do the will of their father, the devil, not not their father, Abraham. But if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So in fallen man, there's an inability of the heart. There's an inability of any life to reach out for God. There's an inability to be free unless graciously and sovereignly set free by the Son, which leads us to consider, again, two last passages to what God does to save His own. And that is that God alone rescues sinners or rescues man. Just turn back in John to chapter 6, verse 35 through 40. John 6, 35 through 40. There's an intermingling here of belief. Do we do these? Is there some actions? Yeah. Is there some bigger actions? Yes. Let's look through John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is good news. You hunger for Christ? You believe in Him? You'll never thirst again if you believe in Christ. And verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. And these people have seen Him. They don't believe. Verse 37, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And whoever comes to Me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. You might ask, what's that will? What is it? It's in verse 39. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So is there, from this passage, is there looking? Is there belief? Absolutely. And it is in those whom the Father has given to the Son. Or even further down, verse 44, we didn't read, but those who have been drawn to Jesus by the Father. In light of our bondage, our slavery, our walking away, this is love and mercy and grace. That those who do not seek God, those dead in sins, slaves to sin, which there's a desire for self and not God, those are whom God draws to Himself. And so lastly, turn back to our beginning passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.26. Paul's speaking here in this chapter. There's divisions. He wants them to agree. There will be no divisions among you. Be united, same mind. And I think at least part of, if not all, of his answer is, why are there divisions? And he's saying this in verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. And so for us, we can do this as well. Consider your calling. How have you come to be saved? What did you bring to the table? What merit or good does God see? Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You feel foolish, unable to follow God with all your heart? You feel weak rather than strong, low and despised? Why does God do this? Verse 29 answers, why we're foolish, we're unable, we're weak. Why does He do this? Verse 29, so that... No human being might boast in the presence of God. No human may boast. No one ought to say, I saved myself by choosing Christ. Rather, He chose me. Chose me foolish, weak, lowly, prone to wander. And we could talk more about the Christian life, even wrestling with these two, renewed by the Spirit. He chose us, prone to wander. He chose us. Not so that we could boast, But then verse 30. And because of Him, because of God, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And look at what He became to us. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Do we want all these? We say, oh, I'd like to be wise. I want to be wise. I want to be righteous. That's a good yearning. That's a good desire that God's put in our heart for those things. I want to be sanctified. I want to be redeemed. But they all find their answer in Christ. Because of Him, God, you're in Christ. And then verse 31, so that as it is written, then where's the boasting? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of Him, you're in Christ. I'd like to turn the phrase, um, I don't believe God forces anyone to Christ. I think sinners come to Christ because they want to. 
Because why? Because God opens eyes that see our sin, what it is, they see Christ, and He rebirths. We're born again, our dead and enslaved will to desire Him. I think the terms free will and free choice, they can muddy the waters in which God is to be absolutely glorified. There's a way in which we can speak of those. Say, well, do we make choices? Yeah, Starbucks, Caribou, Walmart. I mean, we make choices, right? But the freeness of that phrase, um, I'm not saying we can't use it, but it just needs to be defined. All of us, we ought to agree, the Bible does call man to doing things. There's acting, there's doing. Even calls for man to put his faith in Christ, to repent of sin. But this, dear brother and sister, this is the miracle of God. For we were blind. I mean, that's what we've been studying through Mark. We were blind. We were deaf. We were slaves. We were dead. But as Christ was raised to life, so too we. It's not by our choice. I think 1 Corinthians would make clear it's God's sovereign and free choice to choose us. We love because He loved us. So we must say salvation ultimately belongs to our God. A couple of things as I wrap up here. A couple of books you might find helpful. You might, you might not. A couple that are helpful to me. One I got in uh, just I think this last Monday. Of re- I haven't read the whole thing, but read a part of it called "The Potter's Freedom" by James White. It might it's thick. Might give some answers. There's there's a lot of other texts and places, and you go well. How do you deal with this and that? I think he's very helpful in that. Uh, another one, J.I. Packer wrote a book called. Uh, evangelism and the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign over salvation, should we go tell people about Christ? Absolutely. We should go out and preach the gospel. It's just that in our going out, we understand God will change the heart. But also, if he's going to work in the heart, it's going to make our evangelism evangelism, uh, successful. For those God has chosen, he will redeem and rebirth. Helpful book, perhaps, on that. And then another uh, unknown book, probably, uh, other than founded in seminary, from a guy, God and Evil, The Problem Solved. So this is by Gordon Clark. Talks in there about, you know, the question about evil and God and how do we answer some of those. Another helpful place online is uh, just lots of articles, free ebooks, monergism.com. You heard me use the word monergism. Monergism.com. And then here's, here's a couple other good books. Uh, Romans 7 through 9 is good. Ephesians 1 or Titus 3. Those are another good, some good reads there. Okay. Just some do's and don'ts as we kind of leave this subject. Some do's and don'ts. Here's a do. Do test what I have to say with the Scripture. I claim I'm no expert. I want to rightly handle God's Word. Okay? Test it. Be like the Bereans. Examine these scriptures for yourself. Look these up. Another do. Do acknowledge, though, the authority of God's word. What we have before us, it's a revelation from God. As hard as certain things can be to understand. I'm not saying we, we can just, oh, we can just understand it all perfectly. No, how does God, he says, I believe, how does that, we hold them together. And we hold underneath God doing the working here. Uh, but we don't want to say more than what Scripture would allow us to stay. We need to be bound to Scripture. We just will not simply understand all the workings of God. 
But again, as we're learning in Sunday school, we're not the reference point, are we, to determine if God is just. He's just whether or not we understand. And so we must be under the authority of Scripture. It says to believe in Christ for salvation. It says to go make disciples. It says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And it says to boast in the Lord. Another do. Do pray as, as you read and listen. Pray. Because these things are brought out by the Spirit in our lives. For those that will agree with this teaching and say, I'm on board with this. I like it. Here's just a caution. This is from a title of a book. Uh, and he, Under the title it said, Don't make a wreck of a perfectly good theology by beating up on those that disagree. Let's not do that. We are to love, show compassion, and gently lead along and say, look at the, look at the pastures of this. Look at the green pastures of God's sovereign work. It's, it's not a sermon to go, there, you got it now? Okay? It's not that. Now, I speak to those that will disagree. Please don't lump everyone who believes this way on the will of God, the sovereignty of God. Don't, don't lump everyone who believes this way with others who have promoted these things, perhaps in the past, but not with Christian charity. We need to deal with the Bible and its teachings, but not let man or reactions of man or the ways of man detract us from the teaching of Scripture. I hope this has been helpful. You might have more questions. Um, the office is closed this week not to not answer any of those. <laughs> okay, Ask them, save them, or whatever, or ask me after service. Say, look at this. What about this? We can talk about that. Let's pray together. Father, these are big things. There, there are months worth of reading and study and passages that we could look at. But Lord, we've been given some of these, some from Genesis 50, some from Genesis 2, 1 Corinthians, John, Romans. Father, I pray for each one of us that this would not be a lesson of knowledge only, but we do what our intent to do is to say, Lord, you had mercy on those in sin. Those who were slaves who could not do anything but sin. And you had mercy and grace to come and draw us to yourself, not because of anything we have done, but because of your great sovereign grace through Christ. Lord, help each one of us to not boast in ourselves. May our boast be Christ. May this community see that our boast is Christ. And may we go out with this boldly to preach your gospel to a lost world. Or not to hide and hunker down, but to live it out and to go make disciples as you've commanded us to do. And so we want to go forward in your power. Lord, where we're weak to understand, where we're off, where we're just thinking in a man-centered way, help us, Lord. May we be a church that glorifies your great salvation. In Jesus' name.